Good morning and welcome to our program, Our American Heritage. I am the host, Arch Hunter, and it is our desire at Our American Heritage to explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. Understanding the history of this great nation is paramount to understanding our greatness. And we're pleased today to speak with Lindsay Randall. Lindsay, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Lindsay, if you would introduce yourself, your background, how long you have been teaching, your degrees, and then we'll talk about your topic. All right. My name is Lindsay Randall, and I actually grew up on the Mississippi River, which we're going to be talking about today. I am about to start my 17th year of teaching history to high school students. I'm a graduate of the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville with a bachelor's degree in history and a master's in teaching secondary social studies. And Lindsay, you're also being a little modest. Haven't you received a couple of awards over the past several years from your school? I I have. I was the Bentonville Chamber of Commerce Teacher of the Year in 2019, and I was the Social Studies Teacher of the Year this year, this past year, 2022. This this past year, so congratulations. Listeners, Lindsay also has a very unique sense of humor, which I have enjoyed over the years. (laughs) So, Lindsay, please tell our listeners the name of your car and why it's named that and your beautiful black lab. All right. Well, my car is a, a white Ford SUV, and we call it Betty White because I hope it gets as many miles as Betty White did before she passed away. <laughs> and um, our black Labrador retriever, he was born on the 4th of July, so he needed a patriotic name. So his name is Theodore Bonesavelt, but we call him Teddy Bonesavelt for short. Listeners, it's just a beautiful dog. I met Lindsay several years ago when she took one of our classes at the Freedoms Foundation. And then the next summer, she came back for another one of our programs. And she was fairly quiet. And one day we were going to Jumonville Glen, which it's a lot of walking and it's a lot of gravel. It's way out in the woods. And I noticed she had a pair of sandals on in early in the morning. And I went over to her and I said, we're going to be doing a lot of walking. Are you sure you want to wear those sandals? And after a long explanation of why she was going to wear the sandals, it was very, very hot and it was already very humid. And I said to her, I noticed your hair this morning is very curly. Is, you know, is that natural? She went into another long explanation. And from that point on, uh, Lindsay has been uh, actually, honestly, very special to me with her friend, Beck Stevens, who has taken several of our classes together and they're, they're friends. And so I found Lindsay's conversation with her sandals and the curly hair much more interesting than Beck Stevens' first conversation with me about her metal roof and her siding on her house a couple of years before. <laughs> but honestly, Lindsay, I, I hope you can share this. You know, we the three of us have stayed in contact over the past several years and have shared a lot of things together of, of different situations in our lives and have prayed for each other and have encouraged each other. And uh, actually, we've talked and, and kidded each other quite a bit. So absolutely, absolutely. So we, we are honored to have you back to our program today. So, Lindsay, begin to share with us your topic that you want to talk about, please. 
Well, today we're going to be talking about the the Vicksburg campaign during the Civil War. And it's special to me because, like I said, I grew up right there on the Mississippi River, a couple hundred miles north of Vicksburg. But (laughs) in researching and studying this campaign, it really hit home. And a lot of the things that the primary sources, the soldier experiences that I read about made a lot of sense to me because I've experienced some of those, particularly the environmental and climate issues that they faced. I, I experienced those myself growing up there on the river. Um, but it's it's a really interesting campaign when you really dig down into it. And Lindsay, what was your interest in the Vicksburg campaign? Mm-hmm. So um, growing up in the South, particularly on the Mississippi River, I had often heard about uh, the siege of Vicksburg and, and how significant and how important it was. And so in college, I studied the American Civil War when I was getting my history degree. I mainly focused on the west of the Mississippi River, the the Arkansas part of the war. And so as I've gotten older, it's been more interesting to dig more into the war from Memphis to New Orleans just because of my experience growing up on the river. And listeners, if you remember, Lindsay did several programs for us a few months ago on Pea Ridge and Lindsay spends a lot of time walking the battlefield of Pea Ridge, and she is a runner and a walker. So mm-hmm. I begin to share with us the background of Vicksburg, why it's important, who was there, et cetera, for us, please. Absolutely. So Vicksburg is the principal transfer point across Mississippi, south of Memphis. It's access for the Confederacy to western states of Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. It is uh, extremely important when it comes to getting supplies like beef and sugar and molasses, and in some cases lead, to the troops to the east of the Mississippi River. It's often called, Vicksburg itself is called the Gibraltar of the Mississippi. It's on a river bend. Um, The Hill City, as it's also known, sprawls up a series of terraces from the river's edge to the top of a line of bluffs over 200 feet high overlooking the river surrounded by extremely rugged, densely forested hillsides and ravines, lots of narrow ridges and twisting gorges. At the same time, I would say, as many historians would, that the Mississippi River, especially in the summer, has um, an unforgiving climate <laughs> growing up there. I would <laughs> I would that the air is like hot soup. It is very humid. It is very hot. When I was growing up, about an hour north of Memphis, we would have stagnant air warnings in the summer. So the temperature would be around 100. The humidity would be near 100 and there mm. would be no breeze. It's very hard to breathe in that. And, mm-hmm. and as listeners probably know, high heat and high humidity are very taxing on the cardiopulmonary system. So I would call that an unforgiving climate. Plus, you know, the really the regional bird of the Mississippi River is probably the mosquito. And so all of these <laughs> mosquitoes that they're with. Um, so Vicksburg, by the time we get to the Vicksburg campaign in 1862, is um, the key transfer point for rail across the Southern Confederacy. And Lizzie, in case our listeners don't understand this term, would you explain what is meant by the Gibraltar of the hmm. Mississippi? Sure. So if you look at the history of the Mediterranean, the Rock of Gibraltar is kind of a rocky outcropping 
southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, Spain, Spanish Peninsula, into the Mediterranean. And historically, if because of, of how far down that came, if you controlled that peninsula, you could control the waterways, the, the naval access, the trade access across the Mediterranean Sea. So in saying the Gibraltar of the Mississippi, if you controlled Vicksburg because of its location in a pretty sharp bend of the Mississippi River, you can control who is able to pass north or south down or up the river. And so uh, who are the main generals uh, that are competing at the siege of Vicksburg? Well, by the time we get to the actual like Grant Vicksburg campaign, it's it's mainly going to be as far as the army is concerned, Grant versus John C. Pemberton, which some of your listeners may be familiar with since he's from uh, Pennsylvania. And on the water side, the naval side, you've got the um, saltwater command of David Farragut and the uh, what we might call the brown water command of Porter. And so those are really the main players. You've got some other kind of supporting characters like William T. Sherman. It's going to be really important in this campaign. And then our old friend Earl Van Dorn is even going to play a role in this as well. <laughs> you had to bring that gentleman back, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so please set the stage for us. Um, why Vicksburg? You know, how did, did these armies get there? A little bit of the background, a little before Vicksburg, and what causes this to be such a devastating siege for the Confederacy? Okay. So there's a lot going on just in the year and a half before Vicksburg falls. Vicksburg is going to fall to Union hands on the 4th of July, 1863. And if we go back to early 1862, you've got kind of Grant beginning his kind of famous part of his Civil War career. In February of 1862, Forts Henry and Donaldson um, are going to be Union victories where the Union's going to take those forts on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. In April 1862, the Battle of Shiloh kind of uh, brings Grant's name some fame and, and not really in a positive way. Um, the Battle of Shiloh is shocking to Americans. In two days of battle, more men died at Shiloh than in all previous American mm. wars combined. Mm. And we know, you know, as historians and people listening to your program probably realize that Shiloh is the first really bloody, bloody battle of the war. This is going to be before Antietam. It's going to be mm-hmm. before Gettysburg. So in their minds, Shiloh is just, Grant is kind of painted as a butcher. And up to that point, Grant believes that the rebellion against the federal government is going to collapse suddenly that one single decisive victory could be gained over the ar- army of the rebels and they would collapse. But what he realized on his first day at Shiloh is that the Union could only be saved by this complete conquest that was going to have to happen. And the war is going to be fought with an intensity beyond anything they had reckoned before. So that's in April of 1862. The other big thing is going to be the capture of New Orleans by Farragut's fleet in 1862. And that's going to be a big kind of rocking of the Confederacy that New Orleans falls. It goes back 1861. There's a plan kind of made called the Anaconda Plan by U.S. General and Chief Winfield Scott. He says the way to win this war is going to be to blockade the Confederacy seaport, both along the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico, and send a huge force up the Mississippi River to capture and hold the Confederacy's principal river ports. This would suppress enemy steamboat commerce and troop movements. 
it's called the Anaconda Plan because they're thinking of closing off the Confederacy to the rest of the world and slowly strangling it like a giant snake. The idea behind that would be the war could be won without a single major battle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the theory. The plan is never formally adopted, but the union in the Spixburg campaign we're going to talk about does employ a strategy similar in some ways, right? This blue water blockade, uh, the saltwater fleet, right? That's Farragut and his kind of ocean sea fleet and what we would call the brown water fleet, the river fleet. The Mississippi River, many of your listeners may know, is known as the muddy Mississippi. The water is quite brown. And so when I say brown water fleet, I'm talking about the river ironclad gunboats that they're going to create. So with all that background of Grant and the Anaconda Plan and Grant's reputation at this point is not that good because of Shiloh and some of the generals in the east don't particularly care for Grant. How does this begin to unfold that Grant goes from Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson to Shiloh to Corinth down to Vicksburg? Mm -hmm. All right. So the first thing that happens is that the Navy is really going to be pushed to try and take Vicksburg themselves. So the naval campaign against Vicksburg begins in May 1862. There are a couple of errors made. They're going to try and at first just bypass Vicksburg by digging a canal across what's known as DeSoto Point. That's the bend of the river across from Vicksburg on the Louisiana side. They're going to try and dig a canal in the spring. And anyone who's ever been on the river in the spring knows there's a lot of rain and there's a lot of flooding and there's a lot of mosquitoes. Mm. And so a lot of these workers, these soldiers on the Union side, including a lot of African-Americans who had been enslaved in Louisiana and pressed into service by the Union, they're going to get very, very sick Malaria is the biggest issue that they're facing, but also dysentery, cholera. You know, it's not clean. They're sleeping up on these levees and it floods out. The naval campaign is going to try and shell Vicksburg into submission. They kind of pull up their navy out in front of Vicksburg on May 18th, 1862, and there's an ultimatum given surrender or else. And the Confederate commander at the time, James Autry, sends a letter to Farragut, purposefully underranking him in the letter, calling him Captain Farragut, and says, Mississippians don't know and refuse to learn how to surrender to an enemy. If Farragut or Brigadier General Butler can teach them, let them try. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, and, and so the union does try, but they're not successful. They shell the city beginning uh, June 28th for many hours. They're going to shell the city itself. They're going to shell the, the walls of the city and try and break it down. The fleet was in front of Vicksburg for an hour and a half. They didn't lose any ships. They only lost some men, like a small number, but the city remained. And Porter, in particular, David Porter, who's eventually going to take over that groundwater fleet, he says ships and mortar vessels cannot crawl up hills 300 feet high. And that's the part of Vicksburg that's going to have to be taken by the Army. He writes to Halleck and asks for Halleck to send troops. And, and Halleck is kind of still mentally recovering from Shiloh and then Corinth. And he says he needs more troops in Tennessee and can't send any down to Vicksburg. But we'll see. You know, he's like, we'll, we'll see if I can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's when we kind of realized this is going to need to be a joint Army and Navy expedition. And Grant's interested in doing it. He's kind of got some struggles he's facing in that. Like we said, the Northern Press, people are calling for his replacement. He's got another general that he's working with named McClernand, who doesn't like him and is kind of working in the background against him, writing letters to Lincoln about how terrible he is. And 
there's this rumor that Grant is an alcoholic and that he's drunk all the time. But basically, the way the campaign starts is that Grant begins writing letters kind of in the background secretly to Porter, and he kind of proposes this joint force. And Porter says, hey, I'm supposed to work with McLernan, but I haven't heard from him. So in the meantime, yeah, I'll, I'll work with you on this campaign. And that's how it gets started. They start, like I said, by digging this canal that's not successful. And then Grant begins to look for a series of what I would call bypasses. If we can't go straight across in front of Vicksburg and shell it, we need to find a way to get onto, he's wanting to look at the right flank. And so they're going to use a series of back waterways. The Yazoo River, uh, Deer Creek is another one. And some of them are going to be somewhat successful. The Yazoo River is pretty open to travel. But getting out into places like Deer Creek, there's a lot of underbrush. They're very narrow, and and they're going to kind of hit some roadblocks in doing that. Linda, do you think that with Grant's plan to capture Vicksburg, that eliminated some of the reputation of just being a butcher? And did that change the mind of some of the generals and leaders in Washington that that didn't particularly like Ulysses S. Grant? Because this sounds like a very complicated plan that he's undertaking here. It is very complicated. And I recently read Ron Chernow's biography about Grant, and it addresses some of those exact things that, you know, Lincoln is is not sure about him at first. And so they're going to send some, I don't want to kind of call them undercover people to watch him. Mm -hmm. And these people that are sent to watch him end up really thinking he is just a great guy. They are going to write back to Lincoln and support him and say, you know, he's not this alcoholic. Well, I'm sorry, he is an alcoholic. I need to be clear on that. Grant does struggle with alcohol abuse his whole life. But he is not drunk every day like it's being claimed about him. He's very thoughtful. I I read one historian who said that, you know, Grant, one of his strengths is that he has an instinctive feel for topography. He has peerless horsemanship. He has heroic audacity. But he has an underestimation of the enemy is, is something that is a pattern of his. And he often orders some unnecessary assaults on impregnable enemy positions that are going to be problematic. So yeah, while things get a little better for him, whenever we get down to the meat of the Vicksburg campaign and his army is sitting outside of Vicksburg, he is going to send the army more than once on a direct assault leading to some pretty significant casualties. So it it does some to alleviate the problems. You know, Lincoln ends up saying, I can't fire this general because he fights and Mm -hmm. I need a general who, right? So it does improve a little but not everything. And Lindsay, I'm going to apologize already because I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball question. So, Okay. And a curiosity question, you being raised in the South and going to a university and college in the South, what were you taught and how were you taught about Ulysses S. Grant in your academic career? You know, I'm really glad you asked that because when I started reading Ron Chernow's biography about Ulysses S. Grant, I felt kind of embarrassed about the way that I had spent most of my life thinking of him just as, like you say, a butcher, someone who was able to win the battles he won because of the insurmountable odds against the Confederacy. Like he's often outnumbering other forces three to one in a lot of these campaigns. And I was familiar with some of his battles like Cold Harbor, where there's kind of this idea that he throws these men in as cannon fodder, just with the idea of of beating the enemy back with numbers, and that he was a drunk. 
And in reading Chernow's documentary, I realized that he's actually pretty brilliant when it comes to his plans. We're going to see in the Vicksburg campaign here, there's a lot of trickery. And bless John Pemberton's heart, but he just gets tricked over and over and over again by Grant. And it's really, as I was as I was reading through that, I was like, wow, that's really to have the mind to kind of come up with these complex, it's like a chess game, to come up with all these complex movements. It really changed my opinion on Grant. But as far as like what I learned in the South about Grant, mainly, you know, the old idea that he was a butcher and that he was an mm-hmm. alcoholic and really focused a lot more on the heroics of the Confederate leaders historically. And Lindsay, before I forget, uh, John Pemberton, as you stated, was a Philadelphian by birth. And he is buried in the Mount Laurel Cemetery, in the same mm-hmm. cemetery where George Meade is buried. And mm-hmm. each each year, the Meade family and the Meade Society has a memorial service at the Laurel Hill Cemetery. And every year, they have a little bit of, of a mini protest still that John Pemberton is buried in the yeah. same cemetery. So these things work both ways, you know, throughout yes. throughout our geographical locations. Absolutely. So you were sorry to throw you that curveball, but I thought I better ask you that before at my old age, I forgot that question. <laughs> so you are now painting the picture of Grant's assault yes. on Vicksburg. So in late 1862, Grant decides to begin the campaign with a two-prong assault. First, they're going to attempt to lure the Confederate forces from Vicksburg, and then they're going to have Sherman strike. Grant meets with Sherman and and has Sherman move up to Memphis and kind of combine a couple of different forces so that Sherman's going to have a pretty large group. And then Grant is going to, as Sherman's got Pemberton's troops kind of tied up, Grant's idea is that he's then going to attack lightly held Vicksburg and it'll be a victory and and they'll win. Unfortunately for Grant, before this can really get down into the meat of things, right, Van Dorn is going to raid Grant's depot at Holly Springs. And this is kind of a big deal. Grant is being supplied by rail from Holly Springs. He's the first commander in history to mount this huge campaign like this that relied entirely on a single railroad for logistical support. He's got a very long supply line, 200 miles of single track line through country crawling with rebel cavalry, not just Van Dorn down in Mississippi, but Bedford Forest up in Tennessee. And it's whenever his supply depot at Holly Springs is taken by Van Dorn, that puts a kink in his plans. Van Dorn rides in on December 19, 1862, with a force of 3,500 men. They come in from Grenada, Mississippi, northward, swing all the way around the Union Army and thunder into Holly Springs Depot at dawn. They capture 1,500 Union soldiers, almost an entire garrison, and every rebel horseman had carried a bottle of turpentine and a box of matches. And in eight hours, the cavalry burned this massive mountain of federal supplies. So this raid changed everything for this campaign because to replace what had been lost at Holly Springs, Grant's going to have to immediately begin bringing supplies in by rail. But that was impossible because Bedford Forest had been up in Tennessee for five days ripping up tracks and twisting them and burning bridges and, and wood yards and depots. And the raids destroyed Grant's rail and telegraphic communications from Jackson, Tennessee, all the way up to Columbus, Kentucky, which was his rear supply base. And so Grant's forced to kind of pull back this two-prong assault. And historian Edwin Beers wrote, for the first and only time in Civil War history, cavalry and cavalry alone was the decisive factor in a major campaign. 
So he has to kind of change plans a little. So, Lindsay, unfortunately, we are up against time for this program as you are getting into this fascinating story of Vicksburg. So, listeners, you now know why Lindsay Randall is one of my favorite people in her explanation and her character and her presentation. So, Lindsay, thank you for this presentation, the beginning of the Vicksburg campaign leading up to it. And we're going to continue with Lindsay in the next program. So, Lindsay, thank you for sharing with us and stay with us, listeners, because we have another program with Lindsay continuing with the Battle of Vicksburg. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing this part of the Siege of Vicksburg with us today. Thank you. And tell Teddy we said hi, please. And we hope Betty White lasts a long time. (laughs) I sure will. Thank you. (laughs) This is 1180 AM WFYL, working for your liberty.